Well, thanks, Adi, for sharing your story with us and your warm invitation to walk with you as a community. And on behalf of the Jericho Ridge family, I want to say welcome. And I want to add my welcome to you, friend, as you join us here in this online space for a time of learning and exploration together. My name is Brad, and I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. So if you're new or visiting with us, this is a great time to be along for the ride. And if you would just do me a favor, head over to jerichoridge.com connect and fill out our 30 second connection card. And that just lets us know how we can serve you better. And if you're watching on our interactive church online platform, there's a button that's gonna come up for you now to click on. And I just wanna thank you for being with us today and allowing us to serve you. So today we're launching into a new teaching series entitled, Who is Jesus? And we're gonna be going through the whole gospel of Matthew over the next couple of months. And so today I wanna to set the stage for us by helping us get some of the big picture things that Matthew wants for us to know. And over the course of the coming weeks, you're gonna hear from some of the diverse teaching voices in our community, as well as a wide range of journey stories of people that call Jericho Ridge home. And my hope is that you'll get to know each other better and you'll get to know Jesus better as well. Because the way that we get to know about a family is actually through the stories that we tell ourselves. Family stories have an identity shaping function to them. So think for a moment about the stories you've heard or the stories you tell about your grandparents or other family members. The way that these stories are told has an important function in identity formation. So take for example, the stories I heard growing up in my family about my grandparents. On my mom's side, uh, the story that gets told is about her father who, uh, as he was graduating from university, pulled a help wanted ad off of a bulletin board at the University of Toronto as he graduated from engineering and he went to work for an energy company and he started at the bottom and eventually worked his way up until he was the president of that company. And so whenever that story is told in our family, it's told in such a way that it communicates values, the value of hard work, and it reinforces that value of being a self-made person. And uh, then there's the stories on my dad's side. The story that's told about his father is often a story uh, around the theme of overcoming adversity. See, he lost an eye to an accident in his teenage years, and then in midlife, he lost his leg to cancer. But instead of becoming bitter or adversarial, he chose to help others and become an advocate for others who faced barriers or disabilities in their own lives. And so these stories are powerful factors that shape and form identity as we tell them in our family. And your family likely has its own set of foundational stories that have embedded in them their own set of lessons or values. Dr. Amanda Mbuvi talks about this in her helpful book, Belonging in Genesis, Biblical Israel and the Politics of Identity Formation. So she looks at the scripture and she argues that the stories that we tell ourselves shape our understanding of who we are in the world because our stories actually give us certain assumptions. And so we need to think carefully about the kinds of stories that we find ourselves in. 
And the same is true, friends, for us as Christians. We have a family story, and this story actually shapes our identity and our actions and our convictions. And so today we're gonna dive into a part of our origin story, and we're gonna see that our stories as human beings make the most sense and come most alive when we locate our stories within the story of Jesus and what God's doing. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to the book of Matthew. Now, Matthew is the first but not the earliest of the four written accounts of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. These are called Gospels. And the Gospel of Matthew is written primarily to a first century Jewish audience with a particular desire to help them understand and see the story of Jesus as a continuation of their own story. And that's something that we're going to talk about, and it's something that we frankly still struggle to understand and wrap our minds around today. Because Matthew's gospel begins, if you're there on your device or in your Bible, what to us might seem a very, very strange way. It begins with what I call a list of begats, a genealogy, which is to say the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah. And it lists them all, descendant of David, descendant of Abraham. And then 15 verses, the, the text just simply narrates a family tree. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob, who begat Judah and his brothers, etc., etc., etc. And it's helpful for us to pause and ask, why in the world would you start the story of Jesus in this way? Why not start the like the Gospel of Mark does, boom, right into the story of John the Baptizer. Or why not start like Luke does? Gives a nice little preface, helps us understand that meticulous historical research has gone into the story of Jesus. Or John, John begins his Gospel with like a philosophical prologue to help locate us. Why would Matthew start with a boring list of names that most of us, be truthful now, skip over when you get to something like this? in the scriptures. Why not save that list for the credits or an appendices or why bore us with it up front? And putting aside for a moment the helpful tidbits of information about uh, women in this genealogy, and we did a whole series on that two years ago entitled Hidden Figures. It's well worth a listen if you missed it. Uh, or putting aside for a moment how we might like to hear a story told, we have to ask the question, what meaning might this kind of a story have for the readers that Matthew is addressing, be they in the first century or in the 21st century? And when we look at that question, it's here that the power of this list actually really begins to open up for us. You see, Matthew's giving us a story, a family story map, a geography of belonging. Matthew is helping his readers and us to locate the story of Jesus inside and alongside the story of the people of ancient Israel. And this is important because sometimes you hear people talking like, oh, all that Old Testament stuff is rubbish. We just need to focus on Jesus. Jesus came. It's now all out with the old, in with the new. And friends, that's a, a historical and theological error called dispensationalism. And it's not a helpful way of thinking about things because the Gospel of Matthew is interested in more of a radical continuity in the storyline. So look with me, for example, in the ongoing language of fulfillment, even in just the first three chapters of Matthew. In chapter 1, verse 22, uh, the text says, All of this fulfilled uh, occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Uh, 
Chapter 2, verse 15, this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Chapter 2, verse 17, this action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 2, verse 23, he fulfilled what the prophets had said. Chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus did all of this to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, whatever else you and I are going to take away from the Gospel of Matthew and the story of Jesus as it's told to us here, we have to first get a hold of the notion that in Jesus, God has come to fulfill all of the ancient promises that God made in the Old Testament. Think of those promises, the ones made to Abraham that Abraham's family would be a blessing to all of the nations in the world. Promises like ones made to Ruth that she would be included as an insider even though she was an outsider in the family and the lineage of God. There were promises made to David that a king would come and rule the world with justice and with peace. And so many promises, many, many, many more from the Old Testament are fulfilled in and through Jesus. I love the way that theologian N.T. Wright speaks about this. I took a class with him two summers ago at Regent and he put it this way when somebody asked him to describe what's the relationship between this whole old and new thing. He said, quote, in Messiah Jesus, something shocking has happened. And that is that God acted surprisingly and unexpectedly just as he always said that he would. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has done what he always promises, and he launched his new creation, end quote. So in order, friends, to understand the story of Jesus, we have to understand the story of Jesus' people, which is reflected out to us in the Old Testament. Jesus is not the first and only chapter in the story of God's dealings with humankind, and it's certainly not the last chapter. Now, I should pause for a moment and clarify, um, and looking into Matthew chapter 2, how I'm using the term story. Because when I use the term story or the story of Jesus, I'm not talking about a fairy tale or a make-believe narrative. I'm using this word story in the way that author and theologian C.S. Lewis does. He wrote that, quote, the heart of Christianity is a myth or a story which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God, without ceasing to be a myth, comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens, this story, at a particular date in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences." End quote. See, friends, the story of Jesus is not just some mythical tale about a good teacher who helps us understand how to be better people or live our best lives now. The story of Jesus is an historical story, a very human story that's located in a particular time and a particular place. Look at the start of Matthew chapter 2. This is the story of Jesus' birth. It's not just given a sense of continuity with the identity of the ancient people of God, but it's given a particular time and date stamp. This story, it says, happened during the reign of Herod. It happened in places like Bethlehem and Nazareth and Egypt and Judea. And these are very real places which even today you can visit and verify some of the historical details of this story. And I have stuff uh, in my office that helps remind me of all kinds of things. Maybe you do too. I have family photos to remind me to pray for my kids. 
I have a pocket watch from my great uncle to remind me of my connection to my family history. And I have also on my office uh, this rock given to me by my friend Peter, which he picked up on a trip to Israel. And I'm pretty sure that you're not supposed to pack out rocks on the tour, so I might be telling this story out of tale here, but this rock reminds me that though you and I can't travel there right now, there are very real places where Jesus walked. There's a real tomb that he rose from on the third day that we celebrated last Easter weekend. There's a real place where he gathered with his disciples to pray. And yes, I get that much of it has been commoditized over the centuries, but this rock kind of reminds me that there's still some very real dirt kicking around on this planet that was touched by the sandals of the rabbi that I follow. The story of Jesus, friends, is an historical story. As C.S. Lewis says, Jesus happened at a particular date in a particular place, followed by a definable set of historical consequences. In the fullness of time, God sent Jesus to the world. And this is something, friends, that I want you to grasp, and I want you to be confident of this if you're a person who claims to follow Jesus, that our story is an historical story. It is a story rooted in earth and soil and sky and sea and people, and that's why in our teaching times here at Jericho Ridge, you'll hear us talk about and introduce some of the elements of this world into which the Bible was written. We want you to be confident about that. And it's also why you'll hear me and others push back against this sense of Jesus uh, who's colonial or Caucasian. Because we need to remind ourselves every now and then that Jesus was born as a person of color. Much of the medieval art and even contemporary movie depictions of the life of Jesus has him as a very, very, very white middle-aged man. But friends, Jesus would have had dark skin. He was a Middle Eastern person. He didn't descend from heaven in a pristine white robe, blue sash, ever smiling face and say, ta-da, I'm here. He entered our world as a helpless infant through the birth canal of a Middle Eastern woman named Mary who was married to a carpenter named Joseph and lived in a town called Nazareth and who may have tripped over this rock at some point. I'm kidding about the stepping on the rock point, but you get my point. See, I think Sometimes in our era, we are prone to overemphasize the deity or the divinity of Jesus. And when we do that, we actually miss out on this earthiness, the dirt under the fingernails component of the life of Jesus. And that matters. We're going to talk about it more next weekend uh, when we talk about the temptation of Jesus, because Jesus was tempted like you and I are tempted. And there's a new book by my friend, Seattle pastor, Kurt Wilms, and he's writing uh, that he's written called Echoing Hope, How the Humanity of Jesus Redeems Our Pain. And in it, Kurt's trying to help us come to grips with the implications of the humanity of Jesus. He talks about how if we only emphasize the divine aspects of Jesus' nature, we can't really understand how Jesus enters into our places of pain and suffering. Kurt talks about his own experiences of abuse and says that the humanity of Jesus reminds him that this matters, and it matters because, quote, Jesus took on our nature so that we might take on his. End quote. 
I love that about the way that Matthew tells the story of Jesus. Matthew gets into the gritty details in chapter two, the pageantry of the wise men from the east, the horrible and tragic murders that Herod perpetuated on the innocents, the flight of Jesus as a refugee to Egypt. And all of this helps us understand the reality that the story of Jesus is located in particular times and particular places. And this makes it, friends, not only historical, but defensible and intellectually credible. You can check it out. So first, the Jesus story is a story of radically disruptive continuity between the old and the new things that God is doing. And secondly, Jesus story is a story of real historical places and persons and spaces. And then as we flip the page over to chapter three, I wanna briefly mention that the story of Jesus is also a story of radical obedience. In Matthew three, we come across the story of John the baptizer. John's a cousin of Jesus, and he's the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets. And John has a very unique ministry. He's practicing the ancient ritual of immersing people in water to demonstrate that they've been cleansed from a life of evil and sin and that they have turned their lives toward God. And it's called baptism. And his ministry is going really well. There are lots of people who have spiritual hunger and thirst, and so John's preparing them. He's preaching to them a baptism of repentance in the Jordan River Valley, and he identifies for people that they need to not just talk about how much they love God, they need to actually show it by the way that they live. Look with me at Matthew chapter three, and I'll pick up a reading in verse seven. Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God, John says. Don't just say to each other, oh, hey, we're safe. We're descendants of Abraham. Mm -mm, that means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the ax of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yeah, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, I baptized with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming soon who's greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and carry his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, John's clear. Someone amazing is coming, and that someone is Jesus. And then Jesus shows up and says to John, hey, John, I'd like to be baptized. And John tries to talk him out of it. Look with me at John, uh, Matthew chapter three, verse 14. John says, whoa, 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 I am the one who needs to be baptized by you. He said, why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires or we must fulfill all righteousness. And so John agreed to baptize Jesus. And after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him in bodily form. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Friends, one of the powerful things that I wrestle with, and maybe you do too, is that I often feel a sense that I need to do the right things in order for God 
to love me or for me to feel close to God. Oh, I need to read my Bible a certain amount or pray a certain amount or give a certain amount of money or fill in the blank with whatever sense it is that feels uh, irrelevant for you. And while obedience to God in those areas can be powerful and life-giving, I want us to note here that this is at a place in Jesus' life where he has not done a single thing to earn God's favor or the words of blessing that are being spoken over him. He hasn't preached his first sermon. He hasn't healed anybody that we've known of. This is a moment of being before doing. And in that moment where Jesus submits to the pathway of obedience, that symbolic moment of baptism, and we're gonna have a few people celebrate that later on this month, and we'll videotape it for you and bring you the footage of that. And that moment of baptism where Jesus says publicly to God and to others, this is the path that I'm gonna walk out of obedience. God the Spirit descends in bodily form, and God the Father speaks a word of blessing. This is my dearly loved child who brings me great joy. Friend, maybe for you today, you need to be reminded of this because we're in a season of profound non-doing and we're kind of stuck in it. And maybe you need to be reminded that your belovedness is not connected to your ability to produce things for God. Your sense of participation and engagement with the family of God. Your belovedness as a son or a daughter of God is not bound up in what you do or do not do. And so your work, my work in this season of non-doing is to learn to receive the words of blessing that are spoken over us. Friend, let me pray for you. Jesus, we come to you in this place and we need you. We confess and acknowledge that many times we try to insert ourselves into your story virtue by virtue of the things that we do for you. Instead of coming to you and learning to see ourselves as written into your story by the things that you have done. And so by your grace and in your mercy, would you teach us in new and fresh ways as we study this gospel together, what it means to be part of your family, what it means to identify with you and to follow you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.